Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Let me pray for us before we continue on with our uh, scripture this morning. Um, I want you to look around the room, and uh, I want you to look at the people who are here, these brothers and sisters who are here as part of this community, um, these family members bought by the blood of Jesus, united through the blood of Jesus. Um, and I want you to look at the empty space as well, and Think about what Jesus means for you. Think about what Christ has meant for you. And think then about the people in our community who don't know him. I want you to ask God to give you a picture in your mind of the people in your life, in your personal relationships, and the people in our neighborhoods who don't know Jesus. And as you think about what Jesus has meant for you and what Christ means for your life, think about all that he could mean for them. And then I pray, I want you to pray that in the coming weeks you'd see their faces in these seats. I want you to ask God if there's someone you have neglected to share the good news of Jesus with because of fear or awkwardness or whatever reason it might be. No shame in that. But as we think about the space God has given us here to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, to be representatives of Jesus, and we think about the neighbors who don't know him yet, and as we consider all that Jesus has been for us, we pray that God would give us a burning desire to connect them to Christ. And so let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for this space. Thank you for this home that you've given us, this place that we get to come and enjoy one another's company and, God, fellowship with each other and and to be your people together, to know that there's, there's something that brings us here, that binds us together, and it's bigger than our politics or our backgrounds or our ethnicity or cultures or anything, that, that Jesus, you're bigger than everything. Thank you that you've, you've knit this family together. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a deep burning desire for those who don't know you, those who haven't experienced your salvation, those who, who aren't made alive in Jesus, our neighbors who are dead in their sins, that, Lord, you would give us a deep burden, a heavy burden to love them well, to connect them to Jesus, to go with the good news in every relationship that we have. And I pray, Lord, that in the coming weeks and months, as we continue to press on as your community and as your family, you would begin to fill this space with people who don't know you. And that, Lord, you would give us 
You would give us perseverance through all the awkwardness, <laughs> perseverance through the fear, perseverance for, for, through, the, through the, the, the trouble that it can be, Lord, just to, to open up and to share the good news of Jesus and to live in community with people who are different from us. God, I pray that as we walk the hard road of following you, you would make it an incredible joy. Even the trouble, even the difficult parts would be a joy as we walk together toward you. God, reignite our passion for the lost. Reignite our passion for you. Birth within us a desperation for the spiritually dead to come alive, for the hungry to be fed, for the naked to be clothed, for the outsider to feel loved and embraced and cared for because of the good news of Jesus. Make this place a home for the homeless, a home for the outcast, a place to be adopted for those who have been orphaned by the world, a place of connection for the lonely, a place of deep fellowship, and a place of resurrection life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, I'm sitting <laughs> because I have a confession to make. Um, over the course of this year, and over the course, especially of the past few months, as we've been working toward kind of the launch of Hillside, and we've been working toward... Um, We've been working toward who we are becoming. Right? I have let the success of this place become my identity. And there are lots of days that that's depressing. I've focused more on the numbers and more on the building and the space, and more on the logistics, and more on the academic side, more on the head stuff. And in that time, I feel like I've lost my desperation for Jesus. I feel like I've lost my, my, my emotional connection to Jesus. Beth and I were even talking about that this morning. We were, as I was confessing that I feel like I haven't led my family well. And if I don't lead my family well, and I let externals define who I am, I'm not a good pastor. And I've not been a great pastor. And for that, I apologize. I'm sorry. I know you may not feel that way. But I do. <laughs> and so I'm confessing it. And I think as I was studying this week, this Esther chapter 2, this chapter is a chapter full of tragedy. It, it is the, one of the most tragic chapters in the Bible. And it certainly is the most tragic chapter in the book of Esther. And we'll get into that in just a minute and why that is. But as I was reading about these tragedies and, and studying, like, what does this mean for us? What on earth could Esther chapter 2 mean for you and me right here, right now, in our day and age, in the places that we live? As I was reading through it, 
And I was seeing the way God works through tragedy to bring about reversal, to bring life out of death, the way that God really transforms things. I was convicted because I've grown up a Christian. I've grown up in the church. I've never been outside the church. I've been following Jesus my entire life. And then I've been in ministry for more than 20 years. And I've been in vocational ministry for somewhere around 10 or 12 years. Maybe even more than that. Maybe 16 years. Right? And when you've, when you've been in that space for that long, it's easy to become cynical. Because let me tell you that oftentimes when you're working with people in general, but this specifically when you're working in a pastoral calling or a ministry calling, you see a lot more failure than success. Personally and in the lives of other people. And it's easy to become cynical and jaded and forget that God really does transform lives. That God really does amazing, miraculous stuff. And when you get like I've been, more into the head space and more into the head knowledge, and I believe this is true more firmly than I've ever believed it in my life, it's sometimes easy to let your heart stray. It's sometimes easy to let your heart be connected to other things and forget that God really does change lives. God really does transform people. And it's easy to take our eyes off of the call of Jesus to repent of our sin and be forgiven and to be transformed and made new and to be resurrected into new life and to live in that joy and to live in that peace and that God really can deliver people. Because our theology says God delivers those God chooses to deliver. It. And we always put these, these boundaries and these boxes around what God can do and what God will do. And I think sometimes when we do that, we actually stunt the work of God. I think when we do that, there are some things that God wants to do that aren't done because of our lack of faith. And I'm not talking about like becoming a name it, claim it, look, you're healed because I said so kind of church. I'm talking about becoming a person who actually believes that God will do the thing that I'm asking God to do in the here and now. And so many times my prayers are just lip service to that fact. I pray for it, but do I really believe it? Do I really pray the prayer of faith? And we know that the prayer of faith is God's instrument for working in the world. And so as I was reading this chapter and looking at the tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy that falls Esther and her family and her God's people, and seeing how God works through the end of it, I realized that I've largely forgotten that this is how God works. That it's through tragedy and brokenness and desperation so often that God brings us to a place where he resurrects us. I've forgotten that in my state, in my natural state, apart from Jesus, I am truly dead in my sins and trespasses. I can't reach out for Jesus. I can't reach out for God. But he miraculously comes and he raises me up to life and lifts me up. And that's the work of God, not of me. But when I read this chapter, I'm reminded of that truth. I'm reminded that this is God's work, not mine. That it's not up to me to, to work up this thing inside of me. It's up to me to get out of the way and let God work in the way God will work. And for him to build up faith within me. And so that's where we come to Esther chapter 2. We talked about Esther chapter 1 last week and this, this foolish king, this foolish leader, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes I of Persia, and how he was all into opulence. He was all into extravagance. 
He was a foolish, weak man who was taken in by all the baubles and all the riches of the world. And here we're going to see this foolish, weak man make a decision that spells absolute tragedy for hundreds of women. And we cannot overlook that. So often we use the language of beauty pageant with Esther. So often when we come to this story, we talk about the, the great beauty pageant that the king has. This is not a beauty pageant. I want to I put that out right now. This is nothing short of a tragedy. Nothing short of a horrendous tragedy that happens in the Persian Empire. And here, here's what happens. So after this banquet that Ahasuerus threw last week, after he deposed his wife, the king, the queen, Vashti, because she wouldn't come and parade herself before the king's noble people, he, at the beginning of chapter 2, is, is thinking sometime later. We don't know how much longer later, but sometime after the king deposed Vashti and said, you're no longer the queen, the, those events came back to his mind. And he was kind of sad. He was kind of down about it. Because so often, when you make really stupid decisions when you're drunk, you regret them later. Anybody been there? And so King Ahasuerus, in his drunkenness, and his extravagant party, he deposed his wife Vashti, and later he's feeling a little sad. And so his advisors come to him in his sadness, and they say, hey, yo, king, We've got a great idea. We can cheer you right up. Here's what we should do. We should go out and find all the most beautiful young women of the empire. And we should bring them back here. And then you can sleep with them one after the other and eventually choose a new queen. That's not a beauty pageant. That's not something you opt into. When the emperor of Persia sends out his men to abduct beautiful young women and bring them to his house, that's not a beauty pageant. This isn't just some party. And the king, of course, being a foolish, weak, extravagant man who's concerned primarily with his own enjoyment and pleasure, says, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. I could use three or 400 new women. And he says, do it. That's, that's great. And so he sends his people out into the Persian Empire, and they go looking for the most beautiful young women, and they take them. Now, when it says young women, and when it says virgins, you've got to understand these girls are 13, 14, 15. They're of marriageable age, but have never been married. And in this time and place, that means they're teenagers. And so the king, in his foolishness, in his opulence, in his self-centeredness, says, yeah, go, get all those teenage girls and bring them to me. This is the first tragedy of Esther chapter 2. This is a tragedy on par with the killing of the infants at the beginning of the book of Exodus. This is a tragedy on par with the killing of the innocents that King Herod does when Jesus is born. These women are abducted they're kidnapped, and they're taken to the queen, king's harem. Which means their entire life now is about pleasing the king. Make no mistake, when these girls are taken, they're never going home again. They're done. They're now part of the king's harem. 
They will come and they will spend a year preparing to spend one night with the king, to sleep with him, to hopefully please him enough that they might become queen, so at least they get that. And they'll spend a year getting dressed up, getting beauty treatments, and then they'll go to the king, and then after their one night with the king, they'll go to another harem with the women who have been used, and they will only ever go back to the king if he calls for them. If he's like, oh, man, that one girl, you know, that one girl, she was great. I think, I think I'd like her tonight. This is sick. Absolutely sick. But this is the world that Esther finds herself living in. And so one of these young women, we learn, is a one girl named Hadassah. This is the only time in the book that Esther's Hebrew name is mentioned, Hadassah, which means myrtle. It's a beautiful flower. It's a symbol of peace. This is the only time it's mentioned in the book. We find out that Esther is the cousin of a guy named Mordecai. She is the daughter of his uncle, Abigail, which we'll find out later. Mordecai, we learn, was descended from a group of people who were taken from Judah into exile into Babylon under the King Jehoiakim way back in like 599 BC. So he's now been living in exile under persecution for years. His family has. What this means is that Mordecai's family was pretty well off back in Judah. They were probably part of the royal court in Judah, in Jerusalem, because the only people that were taken during that particular deportation were the officials of the kingdom. Babylon had come in, and they had attacked Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and they had carted away the officials of the kingdom and then put in a puppet king on the throne in Judah. And so Mordecai's family was well off in Judah, which means when they get to Babylon, they have a place of prominence. They're brought into administration Somehow, some way. So Mordecai now works in the king's courts in Susa, in Persia. After the Persian Empire came in and defeated Babylon, they took those same officials, they took those same people, and put them into positions of authority because these people could read, they had wisdom, they knew what they were doing. And so Mordecai works in the king's courts, which you can't figure out, is this a good thing or a bad thing? You've been taken from your home, which is tragic enough, and now you're not allowed to just live your life. Now you've got to actually serve the emperor who took you. And you've got to make sure that things run well within the empire. And so here's the, other, here's the next tragedy, the tragedy of the exile of the Jewish people. The Jewish people were taken from their home forcibly, made to resettle and relocate in a foreign land. They were outcasts in society because they wouldn't worship the other gods of the Babylonians and of the Persians. They had their own god. They had their own way of life. They dressed different than everybody else. They looked different than everybody else. And while they were allowed to continue serving their god and worshiping their god, they were still living in exile away from their temple, away from their homeland, away from everything they had ever known. And Mordecai's family is one of them, brought to humiliation serving a foreign king, a foreign ruler who doesn't believe in or worship his God. Mordecai's family has been humiliated. And then we read about Esther, that the tragedy doesn't end there. It's not just that she's the child of an exiled people living outside their homeland. 
It's that now we find out Esther's an orphan. Her father, Abigail, and her mother died. And she had to be taken in by her older cousin, Mordecai, who's raised her like a daughter. Esther is a member of an outcast people, an orphan girl living in the capital of Persia, and she's a Jew, which marks her out already. We just stack it, stack and stack. And beyond that, we learn that Esther is taken, she's abducted, like all the young, beautiful young women. We're told right up front that Esther is a remarkably beautiful young woman. Now, understand that when you read the Bible, details are never there just because they're good details. This is not a modern novel where we really love the details and we want to build it out. Details are only included in biblical stories because they're going to be important to the story. And so we learn that Esther is remarkably beautiful. And she is abducted and taken into the king's court as well, taken into the harem to prepare for her one night with the king. Only we learn that she doesn't let anybody know she's Jewish. Somehow the way she was dressing, the way she was acting, it wasn't Jewish enough for people to mark her out. And so nobody knows she's Jewish. So now this girl who's already an outcast, who's already an orphan, has to suppress her own heritage. She has to suppress her own ethnicity. She can't be who she is. Anybody ever heard of code switching? I know some of y'all are familiar with code switching. Code switching is what you got to do when you suppress your own culture in order to engage with another culture. Now, white folk, we generally don't have to code switch. We live in a society that was built by us and for us, for our culture, where other cultures don't often fit in very well. And so if you grew up not in that culture, but that's what corporate culture is, that's business culture, that's sports culture, whatever it is, if you want to fit in, you got to suppress the, own, the culture, you got to suppress the way you grew up, you got to suppress the way you were taught at home in order to fit in with people who aren't like you. You have to switch codes, and you have to talk like them in order to be accepted by them. Now, all of us code switch to one degree or another. Everybody does, right? The way you talk to your teacher at school is not the way you talk to your parents, the way you talk to your boss at work is not the way you talked at home. But that normal code switching that we all do, when you are an ethnic minority living in a different culture, is your entire life outside of your home and your people group. White folk, if you've ever, been, if you've ever wondered why we have ethnic-specific churches, it's because their people don't have to code switch. They don't have to exhaust themselves to be themselves at their church. And it's important for us to recognize that when we engage with people who are of a culture different than ours, that they're having to make some adjustments to be able to engage with us, to have compassion for that, to understand that's where people are. Esther has to do that. That's her life now, living in the harem. She can't Reveal that she's Jewish. She can't reveal the most important part of her identity. The God that she worships. The way that she eats. The way she lives her life. All of those things have to be pushed down and suppressed in order for her to live within the harem. All in the hopes that she'll become the queen of Persia. 
So we have the tragedy of Esther's own ethnic suppression. She has to live constantly code switching, and that is exhausting. And then we have the most tragic part for her, which is the loss of innocence. Esther is a teenage girl, a virgin, never married, who's been abducted into the harem, and now she's got to prepare herself for one night with the king. Now, some preachers and commentators and people have tried to soften this by saying this wasn't really about sex. It was absolutely about sex. That's all. The king wanted to know who would please him most. And we learn that Esther has been very wise in the way that she's prepared for this. She listened to Haggai, the head of the, the, head of the harem. The men in charge of the harem were eunuchs. That means they had been castrated because they weren't a threat to the concubines. They wouldn't defile the king's concubines before they could get to him. And so Haggai, the head eunuch here, is advising Esther on how to please the king, what she should do, what kind of beauty treatment she should have, what kind of smells she should put on, what kind of oils she should apply, how she should prepare, how she should behave in the king's presence in order to find favor with him. And we're told that she found more favor with Haggai than, with, than any of the other young women. And then we're told that on the night it was her turn to go to the king, any woman was allowed to take anything with her that she wanted. And Esther asked Haggai, what would the king most like? And she only took what Haggai told her to take because she was wise. And that when she walked into the king, we're told that he found more, she found more favor with him than anyone else had. That he, our translation might say, loved her. You can argue that this is not love at all. But that he was most taken with her above all the others. And Esther loses her innocence that night in the king's bedroom. This is horrible. This is wicked. This is evil. And let's not call it anything but what it is. Let's not call these tragedies anything but what they are. Sometimes we can read this and we know what's to come. And so we read some positivity back into this. We know that Esther is going to be called to save her people. We know the story, if you've read ahead or if you've ever heard the story. But stop. Stop your brain from going on. Just read this as it is right now. And all you can read is tragedy. That's where we sit at the end of this chapter, or at least at the end of these verses. Where Esther has been abducted by the whims of a foolish and wicked king along with a number of other beautiful young women who will lose their innocence to this king for his own pleasure. She's had to suppress who she is in order to be accepted within the harem and accepted by the king. She's had to hide her identity, hide herself. And she's been wise in the choices that she's made so that she can become queen so that her life will be marginally better than the other women in the harem. But it's not like she has any real power when she's queen. She's treated better. Which isn't saying much, to be honest. 
And that's where we are. And yet, even here, even in the midst of all this tragedy, tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy, even in the midst of all of this, we see God's hand at work. Anywhere you read that Esther found favor with someone, you're supposed to read God's hand in that. You're supposed to read God moving upon the people that she's dealing with, upon Haggai, the eunuch, and upon the king as she walks into him. Anywhere you see that she found favor in someone else's eyes, that's the hand of God at work behind the scenes, trying to put her into a position that he's going to need, in a position that her people are going to need. We also read that she was wise in her decision-making, which in the context of this story, as you're reading, is because she's one of God's people. She's wise because she's one of God's children, because she is a Jew. And God has given her the wisdom that she needs to be elevated to the position that she gets to in order for God's will to be done in the end. God is setting Esther up through all of this tragedy to bring about infinitely more good than she could possibly ever imagine. He's placing her, he's positioning her through the course of this tragedy so that he can save his people. This does not make God the author of the tragedy. God is never the author of sin. God didn't make Ahasuerus this wicked, foolish king. He didn't set up the circumstances so that Esther would have to be here, so she would go through this tragedy. This is God redeeming the tragedy that she has faced because of foolish, sinful actions on other people's parts. Don't read anything else in that. And so at the end of this chapter, we can come to a little celebration to read that Esther is now elevated to the position of queen. That God has taken all of this tragedy and transformed it, turned it around to put her in an elevated position, a position of influence and authority, a position where she's going to be able to move the course of events to save her own people. We're going to read in the next chapter, the next chapters, we're going to read Esther, Mordecai say to Esther, perhaps you've been brought to this position for such a time as this. Maybe God has redeemed this tragedy to bring you to a place where you can influence things more than you ever thought possible. Maybe, just maybe, that's the case. And for each of us in this room, maybe, just maybe, that's the case. Maybe, just maybe, it's the case that we have endured suffering at the hands of sinful people and sinful systems. Maybe, just maybe, it's possible that we have endured tragedy and loss and that we have suffered because of the brokenness and sinfulness of our world. And maybe, just maybe, God is bringing us to a place where he's going to elevate us. Only I know that's not just a maybe. I know that whatever circumstances you've walked through in your life right now, whatever you've dealt with, whatever pain and struggle and suffering you've faced, whatever tragedy has befallen you because of a sinful and broken world, God is in the business of redeeming it right now. God brought you here where you are right now for a purpose. He hasn't abandoned you just as he didn't abandon Esther. He hasn't abandoned you just as he didn't 
abandon his people in a book that doesn't even mention his name. God has not abandoned you. Even when you can't see him at work, even when you don't see him, his finger there, even when you don't know precisely what he's doing, God is there with you. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you. And he will work all things to the good of those who are called according to his purpose, according to Romans. God will not let you go. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul is talking to the people of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a messed up town. People had struggled. People had suffered. We talked about Corinth when we talked about 1 Corinthians 13 a while back. And now in 2 Corinthians, things have not really improved all that much since the first letter. In fact, we know that there was a letter Paul wrote between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Sometimes it's called the angry letter. Honestly, I think it wasn't preserved for us because I think Paul, in his anger at the Corinthian church, sinned. And it wasn't really God's word. I think one of the reasons we don't have that letter is because it would lead us into sinful patterns in our anger. But we do have this other letter to the church in Corinth preserved for us. And I want you to read what Paul writes to these people, these people who have been struggling, these people who have been fighting, who have been suffering in their town. For we know, 2 Corinthians 4.14, for we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. When Paul wrote those words, what was seen was a prison wall in front of him. When Paul wrote those words, what he was seeing were bars on windows as he was writing letters to the churches to encourage them. As Paul wrote those words, he was suffering. And yet Paul says, even these momentary and light afflictions are nothing to the glory of Jesus and of your resurrection. And we can look back at the story of Esther and we can look back on the tragedies of our own lives and we can see God's hand moving us forward and we can say with confidence in Jesus Christ that even these momentary and light afflictions are nothing to the glory that he has planned for me. To the glory that he has planned for us. There is life in Jesus and there is life nowhere else. There is glory in Jesus and there is glory nowhere else. There is redemption in Christ and there is redemption nowhere else. And if we are in him, if we are anchored and rooted in our King Jesus, repentant of our sin and given our full allegiance over to King Jesus, even these light afflictions will prove nothing in comparison to the glory of his work in us. Jesus redeems us. 
Jesus overturns our struggle. Jesus overturns our pain. Jesus has taken diabetes and made it an instrument for his glory. Jesus has taken the death of our daughter and made it good for his glory. We can look now at the struggles of the past and even the pain of now and know that our good God has not abandoned us, will not leave us, and will turn even these momentary and light afflictions to the glory of his name and to the good of his people, just as he's preparing Esther to do. You were brought to this time and place through whatever circumstances you have struggled through for such a time as this to be God's instrument for glory, to be God's instrument of resurrection, of redemption for a people. You were brought to where you are so that those who don't know Jesus would look at your life and see the glory of God and the resurrection power of Jesus at work in you and be drawn to the beauty of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus endured and bought, paid for, redeemed all of the sin and struggle that we experience in life and that we perpetrate in life. The fact is that we're not just victims of our own sin. We've hurt others with it. That whatever struggle and whatever tragedy has befallen us, we've been agents and instruments in the struggles of others because of our sin. And yet our King Jesus, our good God, wrapped himself in flesh and came down as one of us to endure the struggles of this world so that he could redeem all of our pain and sin. He let our sin carry him to a cross and crucify him there so that he could kill it, so he could overcome it, so he could redeem it. And so in his resurrection, he could prove the life that he has on offer for you and for me. That in being raised up, Jesus would draw all the world unto him through you and me. That's the beauty of this table that we get to come to. That's the beauty of the broken bread and the cup. That's the beauty of Jesus' broken body and shed blood on our behalf. And this is why we get to come here. It is a grace of God that imparts the power and grace of Jesus to us so that we can be instruments of the glory of Jesus, so that we can truly live into our purpose, so we can live into our identity as the redeemed of the Lord, who are here to glorify Jesus in all that we do. We come to this table to be reminded of the tragedies that have befallen ourselves and our world and to remind ourselves of the King who has conquered and defeated all of them by going to a cross and rising again.